Amen. Thank you, Tracy. Beautiful truth. We will rise. Our hope today, our confident expectation is in Jesus Christ. And boy, the world can uh, turn over and turn around and turn upside down. It does not shake the reality of who Jesus Christ is and our expectation of him. Well, Ephesians chapter 4 today, I'm going to look at just a, a few verses. And I want to say a welcome to all those who may be visiting with us today. Again, you came kind of an unusual day with a bunch of our folks gone and our pastor, our senior pastor away. So uh, we trust you'll come back and join us. Next week is, uh, Cubby mentioned, National Back to Church Sunday. We hope you'll plan to be here, and we hope you'll plan to invite some folks this week. Uh, start to put on your social media. You let folks know about everything else. Might as well be letting them know about what we're doing at church. And uh, we, wanna, we want to uh, use all the capacity we have to invite folks and remind them of the importance and um, the uh, reality and indeed the need of church. Church is a, an interesting phenomenon in our culture. And there's a lot of confusion about church. And I think next week we'll have the opportunity to clear up some of that confusion. Well, Ephesians chapter 4 today, I want to turn our attention to, to just a short passage and in doing so, turn our attention to um, some big issues. Not big because they just dominate the headlines, but big because they have filtered their way down through humanity's generations to crawl into our minds. Big issues that we must address. Because we find ourselves quite often addressing questions, don't we? Life presents questions to us. And we ask questions and we look for answers. We live in a culture that just is driven by the availability of knowledge and how quickly it is to get on the internet and find out something and uh, to understand and to try to get some answers that satisfies our souls. And Ephesians is, I think, a great place to go. Let me, let me set the stage for Ephesians a little bit and talk about some essentials. This is a Bible. Many of you today sit here with a Bible in your hand. Lord bless you. You're turning. Others are sitting with a Bible in hand where you're tapping. Either way, you've got God's Word. And we affirm this is God's Word, not because of majority vote or just personal opinion, but because it gives us evidence that it is God's Word. Constructed over 1,500 years of writing, it tells us the history of humanity beginning with the creation. It follows the lineage of a man beginning with, of humanity beginning with Adam and Eve. The, the decision they made that influenced all humanity to follow. It tells us about the great event of a worldwide flood. And yes, the evidence supports a worldwide flood to an honest observer, an honest seeker. And I can point you to many great scientists who will affirm the truth of that reality too. Following Noah, of course, his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, become the fathers of people groups that will spread across the earth. And today, all of us, in some way or another, are descendants through that lineage. And we could trace our heritage all the way back to either Shem, Ham, Japheth, and probably in reality some combination of that lineage. We finally are find ourselves in Genesis talking about Abraham, a man that found grace in God's eyes also. 
God designated Abraham to be one whom he would work through to bring about a great nation, and to bring about a great promise. And we follow that lineage and the accounts, the individual personal stories of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And of course, our pastor just recently finished the story of Joseph to complete Genesis. From there, we follow the account of the Exodus. We're introduced to another man, Moses, and the great call that God would put upon his life. We begin to follow this people group as God does miraculous things to remove them from the bondage of Egypt and to send them on this journey to a promised land. It would have its many struggles and its many challenges. There would be lots of decisions to make, some good and some bad. But in the end, as God had said, his people would find their place into the promised land, led by not Moses, but Joshua. Joshua would then, in his generation and those he led, spend time taking possession of that promised land because it was inhabited by those who were very much of the pagan mindset. They worshipped idols. They did not turn their attention to the true and living God. They found their own satisfaction in a God they could make of their own. And so we follow Joshua and later the Judges, that great book that has the descriptions of what life in the promised land was like during the challenges of the Judges. Eventually, the people say, we want a king. God will raise up Saul to be the first king, a man who had great promise. Well, he started well, but the further he went, the worse he got. Following Saul, there would be David. Again, a young man of godly character, whom the Lord would anoint to be the next king of Israel and would lead Israel to its greatest days. David had his challenges, his problems too. Following him would be his son Solomon, intending for there to be a lineage of kings following the righteousness of David and the pattern that God had established. But again, humans being what we are, made bad mistakes, took wrong roads, poor decisions, led to complications and conflict. In Israel, the once great nation of God, an example of God's grace and mercy to the people who would follow his word, would crumble apart. And they would be taken over, many of them by the Assyrian nation, others later by the Babylonian nation. In Israel, it seemed, would just diminish into the sea of humanity. We turn pages to read the words of the prophets who tried to tell the people, who tried to tell the king, turn back. God desires to have you in his will and to serve his purpose. Turn back over and over again. It would be one voice and then another, one in this city, one in that, and it seemed to just be a sounding brass and a tinkling cymbal. The people said, well, it's a noise, but what do we care? We want to live our lives. Let us alone, God. And so, there's Israel diffused into the Middle East, a lost people, as it were, with no identity, no recognition, no capacity to righteously call upon the God who had benefited and blessed them, who had led them and guided them to their greatest of days. They seemed to be content to live in the pits of life. A time of silence will come across the plan of God, 400 years to be exact, and we turn from the Old Testament to the New Testament. We pass 400 years. No prophet in Israel would again speak. 
there would be no voice of righteousness to stand and call the people into the purpose and plan of God. And then we open up a New Testament account. The pen picked up this time by gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And they tell us that God was not through with Israel yet. He had a plan for a Messiah was to come, and that Messiah was to be the one Jesus Christ. The Son of God himself, introduced by a man named John the Baptizer, who was that voice in the wilderness calling Israel to righteousness. Repent was his call. Turn back to God. And in his shadows there walked one who would be the very Lamb of God himself, who taketh away the sins of the world. Born in a manger, very humble surroundings, but celebrated by the voices and the presence of angels, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, come in human flesh to live a life that would be the pinnacle of God's intent for not only Israel, but all of humanity. We read, of course, of the gospel accounts of Jesus, his great miracles, his great teachings, his healings. He raised the dead, healed the sick, purified the lame and the leopard. He had an opportunity to reveal God. Some would indeed listen and be in awe. Never a man spoke as he spoke, they would say. He spoke as one with authority, as if he knew what he was talking about. Well, he's the son of God. But his proclamations could not be heard by the leaders of Israel. And they would do all they could to scheme and to put him under arrest, put him in the hands of the Romans, and see that everything could be done to make sure this man would bother us no more. And they crucified him, completely innocent, completely pure, goes to a cross to die, not the death of just a martyr, a man for a cause. No, to die is the sin death for all of us. His death, though, Fulfillment of prophecy from the Old Testament would be followed by the greatest event of all Earth's history since the creation, the great event of the resurrection. That we can sing, as Tracy did, Jesus has overcome, and the grave is overwhelmed. As we work our way through then the resurrection of Christ, his teachings, his assurance to those who followed him appearing to as many as 500 at one time. He brings the reality to life that had not been seen or known by humanity since then. He gives a perspective, and that perspective recorded for us in the words of the apostles that would follow after the ascension of Jesus to complete a, an assignment the Lord had given them Go ye into all the world, teach, baptize, share the good news that there is a Savior. Jesus Christ is that Savior. The writings of the apostles given to us as inspired of God. You see, the Bible tells us that the words of what's recorded for us here are not merely insightful words. They are not merely informative words. They are inspired words. Inspired by God himself. So the scripture would say it this way, that holy men of God, 
moved as they were by the Holy Spirit, wrote these words. These are God's thoughts. These are from God's heart. This is from God's heart through the hand of man that all generations might know God's word. We affirm God's word as being inspired, as being inerrant. It does not have errors in it that are going to make any consequence to our understanding of the truth of its words. It is indeed inspired. And with that Bible in hand, we look to it to receive God's instruction and God's purpose. Questions that time overwhelm our souls, do they not? Questions that give us pause to stop and think, to reflect. It's not unique to us. All of humanity has found itself in this quandary. How do we answer the issues of life? I think there's only one way to do it successfully, and that is to answer the issues of life through the lens of God's Word. For indeed, it answers the questions that humanity has long asked itself. Where did everything come from? Why am I here? What's my purpose? What happens when I die? The Scripture plainly give us, gives us responses to those important and vital questions. At our own detriment, do we push them aside? I'll deal with death another day. I'll deal with my struggles another time. At our own detriment, do we do such? Because the Scripture plainly sets these answers in front of us and says, here, here is where you can find your, your, your comfort, your confidence, and your courage. Here's what you can do. Take God at his word. And I submit to you today, that call still goes out. Take God at his word. For the scripture says, all have sinned and come short. We are all lousy examples of humans, even on our best day. We need a savior. We need a living and loving Lord who brings to us the reality of what life is all about. These Three score in ten years if we're blessed to live that long. We need to have God's perspective. I submit to you, without God's perspective, we find ourselves stumbling in the dark. Just kind of feeling our way along. I, I don't know. We'll figure it out. Oh, I, oh, we frustrate ourselves, don't we? There's no reason for that when we have God's assurance given to us in his word. And for those of you that may be visiting today, let me say you sit in a, a building of believers in Jesus Christ as our only source of salvation and eternal life. You sit in a building today where we exalt God's word and we will preach its truths. For in the dark world in which we find ourselves, a generation of darkness and perversion around us today, God's word still remains that eternal light that gives us perspective. And we come today to a passage in the book of Ephesians. Let me introduce Ephesians to you just very briefly. This letter was written by the Apostle Paul, the great Apostle Paul. He wouldn't, he wouldn't say that of himself. We do, though. Apostle Paul had so many ways in which the Lord used him, much of it in writing. And the Apostle Paul writes to a group of Christians in a city called Ephesus. Ephesus at the time was one of the great cities of the Middle East. 
I often compare Ephesus to the city of New Orleans. I think it's the most similar comparison for our day and time I can give. A city of New Orleans, a city of great multitudes. New Orleans, a city with a very blended ethnic population. A city of great excitement and dynamic movement, but a city of great sin. Ephesus was such that way. Like New Orleans, it was pretty much a port city. The sailors and the ships would find their way in to unload their cargo and take on new. It was a city that had a great religious heritage in the tradition of the Roman gods. They had built this tremendous temple there to the goddess Diana, considered one of the, ancient, the wonders of the ancient world. It was in that very mixed, very confused very diverse city that the Apostle Paul would go, and we read about in the book of Acts, and who would begin preaching the gospel. People received the gospel. Soon a small assembly of believers. Church, we would say, would be started. Ephesus was a place of great importance. And for a church to exist there, meaning it could have an influence upon those around it and maybe influence the world from there as no one else could. Ephesus was indeed a great, a great toehold for the gospel and the gospel message. Paul later writes. He's there in the city for a while, but he leaves. His ministry will take him other places. But he writes back to these Christians in Ephesus. This is the letter we have today. And he reminds us of some important truths. By the time we get to chapter 4, there are some tremendous realities that have been laid out for the Christians there to deal with. Our time will not allow us to pursue them. But let's jump into chapter 4 and verse 17. We're going we're to hear the Apostle Paul say to these Christians, these who have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, these who said we understand that there is a, a longing in our hearts, there's a death within us that we cannot overcome. And that good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And just like any today, those Christians could say of their testimony, there was a time when I was, I lived that way too. I sought after my own fleshly desires. I, I just wanted to get ahead. I wanted to survive. I wanted to fulfill my own desires and my lust. That's all I wanted to do. But isn't that such a dead-end street? The promises of the world are all nothing but just lures to trap us. And the Christians in Ephesus could say, that, that was true of me, but I heard the good news. Of Jesus Christ, how he came and died for the world. I heard the Apostle Paul explain what that was about, what it meant. And I knew that there was more to life than what I had tried to make of it. And so I accepted Christ. I received him as my Savior. Those Christians would give testimony of that just like multitudes of us today would. And Paul takes a moment here in chapter 4, verse 17, as we'll look at it, 
to remind them of who they are and where they are and the way they should think. So look, verse 17. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord that ye henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk. You see, these were Gentiles in Ephesus. Gentiles mean they, were, they did not have a Jewish heritage. Their heritage was from that lineage of the Gentiles, the non-Jewish nations. And yet they had received Christ. And having received Christ, they had a different call upon their life, they had a different purpose. Indeed, they had been, as Jesus said to Nicodemus, born again. And being born again, they had a new life, a new purpose. Paul reminds them of some important truths that I think still apply to us today. Don't walk as those other Gentiles. Who are the others? The ones who ignore, reject, the ones who scorn and mock at God through Jesus Christ. That's the other Gentiles. They are the ungodly crowd. They're the ones who say, we've got life all figured out. But all they're doing is fooling themselves. Don't walk as the other Gentiles walk. And just to make sure, the scripture here, the Apostle Paul uses these words to remind us of how were they walking. They walked in the vanity of their mind. The word vanity there meaning emptiness. Futility, foolishness. That's how they walked. They were thinking. They were living. They were going day by day with empty, foolish pursuits. Is it not true that the world and the culture in which we live today still has a multitude of that mindset? People who say, oh, life is great as long as I can be in the bar, as long as I can have this drug, as long as I can have this sexual encounter, as long as I've got some money in the bank and some gas in the tank, life is good. That's a foolish, futile, empty way to live, is it not? The world puts its promises on a silver platter, but all it's doing is luring us into a pathway of death. And we live in such a time. It's not unique to us. Every generation has had it. There have been those who have found themselves trying to pursue that American dream. More stuff, more money, poor prestige. And yet it's all empty and vain. How sad are the stories of many lives taken to their ruin by their own desires. They were living in the vanity of their mind. It's an important reminder, is it not? We do not seek to live in the vanity of our mind. These are the people who deny truth. They reject reality. Oh, I don't need to know about God. They avoid wisdom. They seek to live as if they've got everything before them and all eternity is in their grasp. A phrase of an older generation would be, they've got the tiger by the tail. That worldly crowd still exist. 
And they still pursue their perversions. We'll see that in, here in following passages. Verse 18, having the understanding darkened. They're, they're groping through life, just trying to feel their way along. They have been alienated, the Scripture says. They have separated themselves from the life that God wants for them to have through their own ignorance. And they have no desire to pursue God. Atheism is a rising philosophy in our land today. Bookstores have shelves of books written by the atheist in their pride. The God delusion, one called it. The atheists have their voices, and they blow their trumpets loud and strong. But just like the scripture says here, they're living in darkness, alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them. They willfully turn their back on God. And the blindness that's in their heart the scripture holds back no words to help us understand this mindset has no future. These hard-hearted, spiritually blind ones have no desire to pursue God. No desire for righteousness. To them, life is about living it for the moment. The old Epicurean motto still echoes through American culture, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. And that's the mindset of many. They're out there today. Some of them are just waking up from a hangover trying to figure out what was it I did last night. Some of them will set their sights on today thinking, how much alcohol can I consume? How much drugs can I ingest? How much satisfaction can I find in my lust? That's all that drives them and motivates them. The scripture says of these, through these words here, but they are living a life that is empty. Their pursuit has no reality to it. They are even, as verse 19 says, past feeling. They are numb to the realities of what the world is really all about. They are insensitive and dull. Their heart is calloused toward the realities of what God would have them to know. They have been deceived they have given themselves, the scripture says, over to, and you've got to love this word, right? Lasciviousness. Not a word we use today in, in, our, in our more common English language. It simply means unbridled sensuality. It means to pursue with all of your energies the desires and lust of your flesh. That's what they've given themselves over to. Whether they will admit it to not, or not, to ask these people, what are you living for? Their only answer is, for myself. I'm just living for me. Their actions and their attitudes portray exactly what their intent is in life. Their intent, as this verse goes on to say, is to work all uncleanliness with greediness. Selfish and lustful, that's their desire. And it surrounds us, does it not? All we have to do is pay attention to the commercials. All we have to do is see the advertisements on the billboards and on the city buses. All we have to do is read the blog post of these people. 
They're driven by this perversion of uncleanness. Greed, selfishness drives them. They pursue every craving of their physical desire with reckless abandon. I submit to you today what a miserable way to live life. When it could be lived in the light of knowing Jesus Christ as God's son. When it could be lived in light of eternity because we realize there's more to this life than just the momentary expression of a craving. The scripture reminds us of this way in which people live as a reflection of how they think how they perceive and how they pursue. That's why the gospel message today needs to go forth clearer than ever to our culture. It needs to be resounded from the lips of those who claim to be followers of Christ and born-again ones that we serve a living Savior. And that the gospel message and the good news is still appropriate for 21st century Americans. Because all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. But the echo of that is followed by the truth that by grace can you be saved. Oh, not of yourselves. It's not of your works. How pitiful a thought it is that I can do anything to satisfy a holy and righteous God. It's all been done by his son, Jesus Christ. It's just a matter of me putting my faith and trust in him. That good news of the gospel still echoes today with the same power and the same authority it still reminds us that we are called not to this life. You see verse 20? Ye, you have, not, you have not learned this of Christ. This is not the way you should think as a Christian. The sharp contrast could be no more definitive. We should be exactly the opposite of this. Paul writes to those Christians in Ephesus and says, here's, here's a reminder, yea, here's a warning. Don't fall prey to this mindset. Don't allow yourselves to be deceived and confused. Don't allow yourselves to be lured away by the things of the world. Don't allow yourselves to be diminished in understanding the reality of who Jesus Christ is and his intent for your heart and for your life and for eternity. For there is an eternity. Someone wrote in a song, life has many choices, but eternity only has two. The scripture gives us focus. It gives us clarity. It tells to us, let the Bible, let its truth sink deep into your heart and to your mind. The Apostle Paul will write to a group of Christians in Rome, recorded for us in Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. And he says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your body a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. You see, there's a Bible perspective to our body. If you ask most people today, who owns your body? They would almost think it an odd question, but it's a question with an answer. There's only two choices. You either own your body or the Lord God owns your body. 
Present your body a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Verse 2 will say, and be not conformed. There's no reason for you to look like the world, sound like the world. Hear all the world's clamoring and clamor in their, in their putrid list of songs and thoughts. Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. How's that renewing happening? Through God's word. Through the eternal truth that's given to us. That we may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. God has a will for our lives. Will we pursue it? Will we accomplish it? Well, if it's going to happen, it's only going to happen through God's word and the work of the Holy Spirit in us. 1 Corinthians, Paul would write to the Christians there and he would say, we, we have the mind of Christ. We see things through eternity's lens. Through the truth of Scripture, we have the mind of Christ. Paul would write to another group of Christians in Philippi, let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ. When you think of the Bible, Paul's words, I think, remind us. Think of it as the filter, the lens through which we see our lives and life around us. When the issues and the questions come before us, God's word will give us perspective. But don't follow after the path of the world. He's writing to Christians in all four of those situations. Here in Ephesians, Romans, Corinthians, Philippians. He's writing to Christians and reminding us, don't fall into the trap of the world. Let the Bible guide you in all that you do. Let its truth permeate every thought. Indeed, life brings us questions. The Scripture doesn't push us away from them. It doesn't cause us to crawl in the shadows and hope that somebody else will figure it out. It brings us face to face so that we can answer the question of God. Scripture has that truth. We can answer the question of self. Who am I? Who am I in God's creation? Who am I before God? What about truth? We pursue truth. That's the very reality. Familiar words to us of Christ himself. I am the way and the truth and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Go to John chapter 18. There in the hall of Pilate. Jesus will say, I came into this world that I might bear witness of the truth. Following Jesus Christ is the greatest step into the light of truth person can ever pursue. Knowledge. How do I know? What do I know? God's Word reminds us. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, Proverbs tells us. Reality. Has it dawned on you that there's a reality beyond this reality? Yes, we live in this world where we see, hear, smell, taste, and touch it, but there's a reality beyond. The reality of the existence of God's presence and the reality of a place called heaven and the reality of a place called hell. We need to have a biblical perspective on reality. Wisdom. 
a great pursuit of the scriptures. Wisdom mentioned over 200 times, well over 200 times in the Old and New Testaments. Pursue wisdom, pursue wisdom, pursue wisdom. Hear the voice, Proverbs chapter uh, 4 through 8, we'll talk about. Hear the voice of wisdom calling in the streets. We need to hear wisdom and pursue wisdom. Ethics. How do we know what is right and wrong? Well, we live in a culture, can't figure that one out, can they? They don't know what's right and wrong because they're only pursuing themselves. Ultimately, the questions of life. Why am I here? What's my purpose? What's the meaning of my existence? And the greatest question of life is what happens when life here is over. Scripture gives us clarity on all of these issues. And like Paul's reminder to the Christians of Ephesus, if we pursue that which the world has, which the world prioritizes, and we ignore God's word, we do it at our own detriment. We do it at our own downfall. The scripture gives to us the answers. We have the opportunity to pursue it. Let us hear these in these few verses, the important reminder from Paul to those Christians in Ephesus. Remember what you've learned and what you're continuing to learn. Continue to learn God's truth. Continue to see how it applies. Continue to see so that you may have a lens of righteousness as you view the world around you. It makes a difference in how you live your life and how you raise your children and how you, how you exercise the, uh, the family, how you involve yourself with the church. It makes a difference. And today, we echo the reality of what the Scripture says. We have not learned all those things of the world and of the flesh in Christ. No, we have a different path. And let that be our calling today. So a challenge. A challenge that gives us a reality, the perspective to where and when we live. We live in a fallen world, a corrupted culture, and we find ourselves swimming upstream as Christians 100% of the time. And so let's take God's word and apply it to our hearts there. Let me ask you to bow your heads, if you will. We'll close with just a moment. Uh, with a song. But in, in this moment, I would ask each of us, where do these words apply to your heart? What do they mean to your life? First question that must be answered, what is your relationship with God through Jesus Christ? The scripture gives us clarity. The scripture gives us the invitation. The scripture gives us the truth that we all need a savior. We all need a sinner. With your heads bowed, might there be anyone today who just raised a hand to let me pray for you and say, Harley, I'm going to raise my hand today just because I don't know what my relationship with God is. Or I know my relationship is non-existent with God through Jesus Christ. You wouldn't want to raise a hand that I might just take a moment to pray for you. Okay, thank you. I see that. Second question for Christians, where's your priorities? What answers do you give? Are they from God's word? Or are they from your own heart? I would trust God's word much more than I would 
my own heart. What would your prayer need to be? Do you need to pray the prayer to receive Christ? If so, that's so simple. The process of salvation is brought forth when we confess and believe with our mouths the Lord Jesus Christ. What shall I do to be saved has been asked many times, and the answer remains, simply believe and confess. So might I ask today, if you do not have a saving relationship with God through Jesus Christ, that you might simply pray, Father, I come today to acknowledge I am a sinner. I come today to acknowledge that apart from you, I am dead in my trespasses and sin. Would you pray, Father, I repent. I repent from my sin and I receive Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. Would you pray that the Lord will, as his word promises, give you that gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ? It is a simple prayer, but it's a prayer with eternal ramifications and personal implications. Would that simple prayer be on your heart today? Christian, what about you? What prayer do you need to lift up before the Lord? A prayer of forgiveness for your sin, to cleanse you and to bring you in right relationship and fellowship with the Lord. A prayer of focus. It's so easy for us to get all focused, out of track from the way the Lord would lead us, help us to have the right attitude of prayer there. Maybe, Christian, the prayer of surrender. Maybe there's something in your heart you've been fighting against or some direction the Lord's been leading you and you need to surrender to that. What would be that prayer? Father, thank you for our time today. A few moments in your word. Eternal truth that comes before us to bring us right perspective to the issues of life and the issues of eternity. I pray that you'll work in each heart today, work in all of our hearts. Draw those that are apart from you into a place of salvation, knowing Christ as Lord and Savior. Draw all of us as Christians, born again ones, closer to you to serve you, to find a place where we can, with our hands, with our hearts, with our voices, be a testimony for you in all you do. And bless these few moments before us, we pray in Christ's name, amen. Stand with me, if you will.